Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. Today, we're reviewing a much-beloved dessert for devoted Jane Eyre and David Copperfield fans. I wonder what we'll think. Then, inspired by the tales of Peter Rabbit, we're bringing you a perfectly delightful treat that's also a classic way to start an Easter morning. Finally, we'll hear what Stefan has to say about a recent jaunt to Copenhagen when she files a globetrotting gourmet report. So grab yourself some coffee and get ready for some sweet talk. Andrea, we are already coming up on the third week of Literary Bakes Month. So just a reminder to everybody that next episode, next week in episode 121, we'll be discussing this month's preheated book club pick. And that is At the Kitchen Table, The Craft of Cooking at Home by Greg Atkinson. And if you haven't had a chance yet, do pick up a copy. It's a really charming book full of short stories and also be still my heart recipes so definitely do and pick it up so you can join the chat next week and listeners if you have a particular recipe or dish that you've been inspired to make based on a book that you were reading we would love to hear about it go ahead and post in our facebook group or send us an email at host at preheatedpodcast.com we would love to see what you've been up to well andrea this week we baked nigel slater's seed cake his variation on a very classic victorian recipe that features in both jane Eyre and david copperfield this was a new to both of us cake very straightforward with the addition of some caraway seeds as really the only flavoring. So I am very interested in how historic seed cake turned out for you. Yeah, well, first it turned out that I went digging in my pantry to see if I had any caraway seeds. I didn't, and so I went to the store to buy them. That was no problem. But when I realized I didn't have any, I thought to myself, huh, I wonder what the story is on these little guys. And I looked them up, and our ever-beloved Wikipedia shared with me <laughs> that caraway seeds have long been used in British cookery. And at one time, caraway seed biscuits were prepared to mark the end of the sowing of the spring wheat. Oh. And so these particular biscuits later evolved into this distinctly flavored tea cake. Excellent. And Yeah, then there were some references to some recipes. There was a book from 1591 Mm. called The Book of Cookery. There was a book from 1615 called The English Housewife. But I found a book by Hannah Glass from 1747 Wow, called The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy. Hannah, (laughs) what a title. I know. (laughs) You know how much I loved uh, when she said it was made plain. Right. (laughs) Some things transcend the centuries. That's right. And so she had two seed cake recipes. She had one called a cheap seed cake and another called a rich seed cake. And I'd like to read you a little bit from the cheap seed cake. Now, this is one of those situations where the book is printed and the S's look like the letter F. And so pardon me if um, I have a little bit of trouble when I'm reading this. Yeah, but I think I'm going to be able to do Do you have the actual volume in your hands? 
I don't actually have the actual volume, but I have a picture of the page from the actual volume. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. All right. Okay, so to make a cheap seed cake, <laughs> you must take half a peck of flour, a pound and a half of butter, put it in a saucepan with a pint of new milk, set iron in the fire, take a pound of sugar, half an ounce of allspice, mm, best, mm, hard to say what those words are there. <laughs> Half an ounce of allspice, maybe it says uh, beet fine. Ah, okay. I could see that, yes. Yeah, maybe like ground down. Sure. And mix them with the flour. When the butter is melted, pour the milk and butter in the middle of the flour and work it up like a paste. Pour in with the milk half a pint of good yeast. Set it before the fire to rise just before it goes to the oven. Either put in some currants or caraway seeds and bake it in a quick oven. Make it into two cakes. They will take an hour and a half baking. Isn't that great? It is so charming. And I'm going to guess what makes it cheap is that there's no egg. I think you might be right. So when I look then at the to make a rich feed cake, and this one is also called a nun's cake, um, you, I think, hit the nail on the head. So I won't read the whole one here, but let me just start it out. You must take four pounds of the finest flour and three pounds of sugar beaten and sifted. Mix them together and dry them by the fire till you prepare your other materials. Take four pounds of butter. Beat it with your hand till it is soft like cream. Then beat 35 eggs. (laughs) Leave out 15 whites. Strain off your eggs and beat them and the butter together till all appears like butter. And then it goes on from there. It also uses some orange flower water, and it uses uh, six ounces of the caraway seeds. But you're absolutely right. I mean, those 35 eggs, of course, I stopped when she said to take four pounds of butter and beat it with your hand until it's soft like cream. Can you imagine how long that would take? Does she have a quantity on this recipe? This is someone who is cooking for a manor house or something. Well, and I wondered if perhaps that one is, it's the rich rich, seed cake, and then it says called the nun's cake. I wonder if that was sort of a portion to feed like a convent of nuns. Sure, yeah, absolutely. There was some industrial size baking going on there. They could have used, they could have used your silicone industrial liners that you found. that's right. (laughs) My loaf liners. Only you could hop in a time machine and take those back. Yeah. My last little bit of trivia about caraway seeds, which I thought was so fascinating. You mentioned last week in the episode that Nigel Slater had warned us against using too many because it might make the cake taste medicinal. Yes. I saw in my Wikipedia article, it said caraway seeds were so popular a flavoring that they appeared in at least 14 cake or biscuit recipes, as well as other items, including soap a treatment for hysterics, and a bait for rat traps in the Cook and Housekeeper's Complete and Universal Dictionary. (laughs) Oh, and you know, I did a little investigating about the caraway seed too, and they were thought to aid digestion. And so people thought they really were using them in a fairly medicinal way. So that's why this cake was often offered after a large meal because it was a digestive. Well, now that we know everything possible there is to know (laughs) about the caraway seed and the seed cake, what did you think about this actual recipe and this cake? How did it turn out for you? 
I was so charmed by this little cake, and despite its very humble nature and the very ease with which you could put it together, it really became something more than the sum of its parts. The caraway seeds, I did follow Nigel's instructions. I used just one teaspoon of that, adding that in with my self-raising flour and my almonds after I had beat my butter and caster sugar in my mixer until light and fluffy. You then add in your eggs and your caraway seeds. That's basically it. You scrape that into a parchment-lined loaf pan and bake that at 160 degrees Celsius, which is a very low oven. That's actually only 320 degrees Fahrenheit for about an hour. There wasn't any instructions as to how you might know that was done, but mine had a very nice golden brown color. I did do the toothpick test and that came out with no crumbs. So it was done for me after an hour. I took it out of the pan immediately, left it on a rack in the paper for about 10 minutes, then peeled off the paper for it to cool immediately. And Andrea, I baked this actually right before we were recording this episode, which is a little bit under the gun for me. That's not uh, something that I... <laughs> a welcome to my world. <laughs> <laughs> so I literally have just tasted this, and I thought it was really nice. It has the pervading flavor of just a nice buttery loaf. Mm -hmm. I don't know if by today's standards I would call that a cake, but but a moist kind of loaf of bread, maybe like a banana bread, something like that. And the caraway is just very nice and subtle, but you can tell that it's there. Mm -hmm. I liked it. My kids actually liked it. And Nigel says you do not want to gild the lily by putting on too many accoutrements or anything fancy, but I think a little bit of salted butter is good here. I'm also currently obsessed with a rhubarb ginger jam, and Ooh. that's pretty good, too. Oh, gosh, that does sound good. So how about you, Andrea? Yeah, I noticed in his recipe he was mentioning bringing this to an outdoor picnic. He said it tastes yeah. good, like with ginger beer, and it's a very sturdy cake for traveling. Yes. So. Um, I, I sort of like that description. I did pretty much follow the recipe. Um, it turned out I didn't have three eggs. I only had two. So I used two eggs and about a tablespoon of aquafaba <laughs> liquid. Nice. <laughs> nice. Okay. Yeah. And I think that turned out just fine. I did make my own self-rising flour by adding one and a half teaspoons of baking powder and a quarter teaspoon of salt to my all-purpose flour. And that is a recipe from King Arthur Flour. So yeah. that's easy to do. And I did not have a 20 centimeter by 9 centimeter by 7 centimeter loaf tin. Mine are much bigger than that. So I used two of my mini tins. I have okay. um, tins that are, unfortunately, I don't have the similar measurements. I have the inches me measurements. They're six by four. Okay. And so I used both of those. I sprayed them really well with Baker Joy. I didn't line them with any paper. And since they were smaller, instead of setting my timer for an hour, I set it for 40 minutes and I checked it. They were still a light yellow and um, I could see that they were still undone in the middle. So I did okay. another 10 minutes. They had turned a really beautiful dark brown and I did the crumb test and it passed. So mine were done at 50 minutes. I ate some pretty straight out of the <laughs> loaf tin and when they were nice and warm. And you know what this reminded me of? Oh, gosh. I have a guess, but is it cornbread? Yes! Oh, uh -huh. I'm so glad you guessed that because uh. 
I mean, if my eyes had been closed, I would have sworn up and down that this is cornbread. It had a cornbread texture. It totally did. Okay. I wonder if it's because of the almond, that the almond yeah. mixed in. Um, but it's so interesting because when I make cornbread, I would never put this amount of sugar in it. I mean, I might yeah. put a, a drop of honey in it, but okay. maybe it's the sweetness of the polenta that sort of gives it that type of flavor that in this case is duplicated by the sugar with the regular yeah. flour. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that is so interesting. I didn't think that at the time, but the minute you said, what does this remind me of? Then it just clicked into place. It's so true. Okay, That's good. fascinating. Another really humble loaf, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it would be, again, perfect, as he mentioned, for a picnic. I think it would be great alongside a pot of chili. I thought yeah. it had good flavor with those caraway seeds. Those were fun and, you know, a little bit something different. They add some pretty textural interest and you can taste them just a little bit. Yeah, I, I thought this was great. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, another term for this cake back in the Victorian times was something called a keep cake because it kept very well. And, of course, that oh. was a consideration for for the folks who might not have had, you know, obviously refrigeration, but um, who needed a cake to, to stay put for a while. It also traveled well. And I just thought it was – I was really charmed by it. It was very easy and quite delicious. And now literally half of my loaf is gone. And it's been not even a few hours since I've made it. So <laughs> – yeah, and I was happy I made this in that little mini size because I think I'm going to give one of them away and it's sort of a nice size to give someone. Yes, absolutely. These would be nice gifts. I agree. Um, so Andrea, before we leave the discussion of seed cake, just one more note on the Jane Eyre connection. And there's a great blog called the Bronte Blog and it's on Bronte Blog at Blogspot. She talks about all kinds of food in the, specifically the Bronte books, the Bronte sisters books. Oh, so, I would love um, that. What she says is, in one of the first bright spots in the novel, Miss Temple invites Helen and Jane for tea and shows the young girls true kindness. She got up, unlocked a drawer, and taking from a parcel wrapped in paper, disclosed presently to our eyes a good-sized seed cake. And this blog goes on to say, we just mentioned that it was flavored with caraway to aid in digestion but something else that was commonly flavored was a madeira and i think in nigel's recipe he even says that you might want to serve it with a madeira I did or maybe see make a syrup of madeira and so that's a very traditional thing to do as well I love that it was locked in a drawer. It reminds me of those mince pies that were found in the soldiers' hotel room where they were tucked yes. under the floorbreads. I mean, it really does show you that there was a time when, you know, baked goods with precious ingredients were things that were very special and to be guarded closely. Absolutely. And no surprise, this was also frequently and historically served with tea, which I think would be an excellent way to serve this one, too. Mm. Yummy. Listeners, our Bake Along this week is inspired by the Tales of Peter Rabbit by Beatrix Potter, that favorite children's book that some of you may recall, and either from your own childhood or perhaps you've read it to your children lately. And we are going with the good old hot cross buns, or you might also think of these as currant buns from the book. We're going to be using a recipe from a food blogger named Megan over at Culinary Hill. She specializes in Midwestern recipes, and I liked her particular recipe because she's making them in a big sheet pan all together, and so it looks a little bit easier for me. Um, Stefan, have you ever made hot cross buns before? 
I have, and in fact, it's one of the few yeast breads that my mom liked to make when I was growing up. My mom is not a huge baker, but she would regularly make those at Easter time. So I have very fond memories, and it's kind of one of those things that I've never really had to make them very frequently because my mom always did that. Oh, yeah. It's nice when you've got someone right? who's got that job in your family. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. I thought you might also be attracted to this recipe, Andrea, because it is a yeast dough you are doing kneading, but she is relying on the KitchenAid and a dough hook here for the majority of that heavy lifting. Yeah, and of course, as you guessed, I was attracted to that. I also wanted to point out that she has some good tips in here, and number one being making sure that your yeast is alive. So we have talked about this before, but of course, rising is key to success of this particular recipe, and so obviously you have to have nice, happy, live yeast when you're making it. Yeah, it's crucial. (laughs) It's crucial. and And there's usually a date on the yeast, so do pay attention to that. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, but, speaking, but speaking of the yeast, Andrea, mm-hmm. here she calls for active dry yeast, but I notice that she does not bloom that. So is this a place where we could also use a rapid rise? I what think, do you think? Yeah, I think you could. I mean, the rise, let's see, how long does it last? Um, it's about well, two hours. Two hours. I usually think of my active dry a lot of times you know, I use that in my pizza dough a lot. So that's kind of the one I'm most familiar with. It usually has doubled in size in 45 minutes to an hour. So if if it's a two hour rise that does, and you're using the instant yeast, you might get it a little bit bigger or more risen than you're planning on. So I think I just monitor the size. And you know, once it's kind of doubled in size, no matter what the time is, I would go ahead and go on to the next step. So after your dough has risen, you are going to turn that out. And as Andrea said, this is a nice big bake in a 9 by 13 inch baking dish. You're going to turn that dough out and divide it into 12 equal pieces and shape each into the tightly formed bun. I'm thinking, Andrea, not exactly like we did the bobka, which was definitely more of a braiding right. experience. This is more of just kind of around around dinner roll kind of bun size in my opinion. Yeah. Then placing that seam size down, doing your next rise. So that's two rises. And this second one is about an hour. And then doing an egg wash and baking off for about 20 to 25 minutes. Now the hot cross bun have a historic Easter celebration because they do have the frosting cross. And that's what you do at the very end there with some powdered sugar, milk, and vanilla and drizzling that on top of each bun. I'm looking forward. Yeah, and I will point out one instruction in her list that I know I've ignored before to my peril, um, because at one point when I lived in Seattle, I attended a church where the tradition was for everyone to bring hot cross buns on that Easter Sunday morning. Yeah. Yeah. And so as usual, I was running late and trying to get those done really quick. So I didn't follow the instruction to cool the buns completely before putting the glaze on top. Uh, And it (laughs) melted. Yeah. It melted. I called those my abstract buns that day. And, you know, they (laughs) tasted just fine but if you want the cross make sure your buns are cool (laughs) a good a good tip for for always yeah absolutely so yeah I also wanted to ask you Stefan are you planning on using raisins or currants or neither in this particular recipe she says you can use either one my mom would say I needed to use the currants, but I think I've got raisins in the cupboard right now, so I'm probably going to go with whatever I've got up there. Okay. Yeah. 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 I think I'm going to use the currants. I actually like currants. I can so see I think that. that'll be fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're smaller, too. I think raisins, you know, each bun, it's not, 
it's not like a huge cinnamon roll size. Right. Usually they're a little more petite than that. And a raisin could be a little bit out of proportion, I think. But I guess you could cut them too yeah. if that was a consideration. But yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I'm going to use what I've got. But yeah. I could see you going for the current. Well, listeners, remember, we'll have a link to these recipes in our show notes for this episode, which is episode 120. And we'll also have it on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, and in our Facebook group, Preheated. Well, Andrea, I have been lucky enough to travel to two beautiful Scandinavian countries, Finland and Norway, and I recently added another to my list, Denmark. Yes, you headed off for a whirlwind girls weekend in Copenhagen. Were there any big similarities food-wise to those other Nordic countries that you've already visited? Well, I definitely saw some similarities, but there were many differences to keep me entertained and well-fed. First of all, though, one of the big similarities, cinnamon buns. You might remember I ate a cardamom-spiced cinnamon bun in Norway, and I really loved it. Yeah. My friend Carrie and I, taking your excellent bakery advice, visited a cute spot called Emery's, which turned out to be right near our hotel on the charming Story Strandestrade Street, and that will be the first of many Danish names, I'm sure, to get wrong. Apologies. I was so impressed. It sounded good. Thank you. Well, I'm really happy I could help out. I had a lot of fun researching bakeries in Copenhagen, so I could (laughs) send a few your way. And you sent me a photo, and I have to say, how many ways can you eat a cinnamon pastry? (laughs) Yeah, it turns out plenty. We had three variations at one breakfast alone. The first was a long, crisscrossed, braided beauty called a canelstang. It had a thin layer of vanilla cream on the base. Mm, The second was a round bun with a chocolate filling called a spandauer. And my favorite, the third, was a very puffy spiral called a canelbrud. This was probably the most similar to a large, fluffy American-style cinnamon roll. All three were made with laminated dough loaded with even more butter and cinnamon and sugar. I'll post a recipe in the show sheets for this episode, which is episode 120, for a version of the canelstang that looks similar to the one I enjoyed. Stefan, I hesitate to even ask this question, but do the Danes call these Danishes? (laughs) It's a valid question. It's the same one I hesitate asking every time I order English breakfast tea in England. Uh, just breakfast tea? (laughs) Actually, what we think of as Danish pastries, particularly in the U.S., were brought to Denmark by Austrian and specifically Viennese bakers in the 1840s and 50s. So in Denmark, they're called Wienerbrod or Vienna bread. Mm. They're well-loved and very popular, and you can find them everywhere. It sounds like bread is definitely an important part of their baking culture. And of course, it's one of my favorite snacks. (laughs) Did you track down some yummy slices? I did. We had a really fun dinner at a restaurant called Amon's 1921, and their house-made dark rye bread was to die for. Of course, the fact that it was served with fresh homemade butter didn't hurt either. The bread was very dense and chewy and really sweet. In fact, the Danes make a dessert cake out of leftover rye bread called a rugbrodkak, which is kind of like a trifle. Layers of bread, cream, and blackberry jam. And I'll have to try that next time. Ooh, that does sound like a delicious use of leftovers. I'd be happy to seek that out on a trip to Denmark. (laughs) Now, speaking of rye bread, Stefan, you sent me one of the most intriguing pictures ever. (laughs) It was this large vat of liqueur in which almost an entire loaf of rye bread was soaking. (laughs) What on earth was going on? That was so cool. It was dark rye schnapps. 
schnapps the alcohol, like peppermint schnapps? The one and only. And listeners, if you're not familiar, schnapps is a fairly wide-ranging category of alcoholic beverage, and it includes fruit brandies and herbal liqueurs and liqueur with other flavor infusions. But it starts with the base of a neutral grain spirit. So at Amon's 1921... Oh, and that, is it a restaurant or is it a distillery? It's a newer restaurant in Copenhagen, but the Amon's brand has been around for over a decade, and you even told me they had an outpost in New York for a while. Yeah. In addition to delicious food, they make a variety of homemade flavored schnapps. And it's not an overstatement to say they had some of the most inventive flavors I've ever tasted. My friend Carrie loved the horseradish apple lemon, which was really bright and tangy, as you might expect. But my favorite was that dark rye. It was very rich and syrupy, and it smelled and tasted exactly like fresh bread. Wow. We also tried a Christmas version that was still curing, which smelled and tasted like orange, clove, cinnamon, and pine. Stefan, this sounds like a cold version of those hot beverages we tried in Borough Market in London just a few months ago. Yes. That mulled apple cider with fresh rhubarb, figs, cloves, and star anise. Remember we called those our winter warmers? That is so true. And some of the spices were definitely the same, as was the entire concept of infusing the base with a variety of flavors. And in fact, you might recall we talked about the Danish concept of huga back in episode 105.5 when we asked listeners why they baked. Many said it was to recreate a cozy, homey feeling. These housemade schnapps really encapsulated that concept. Remember, huga means enjoying all the good things in life with nice company and a warm atmosphere. Now that I've experienced it, I have to say there's almost nothing more huga than sitting around a table with friends and enjoying a homemade beverage and delicious pastries. Ugh, I need the Danish word for envy now. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound so perfect. And just to keep us on our toes, it turns out we were fooled by one schnapps flavor I thought was vanilla, but it turned out to be another classic American flavor. Any guesses? Uh, cheeseburger? Barbecue ribs? <laughs> No, but I wouldn't put it past them. It was Coca-Cola. Oh, that does sound incredible. I'm reminded of our Tipsy Treats month last December when we made a few varieties of fruit and other liqueurs. Did you get any make-it-yourself tips? You bet I did. It's just about as easy as it sounds. You mix together your fruit, vegetable, herbs, spices, bread, Coca-Cola, <laughs> along with some sugar to taste if needed. Then you pour over the plain alcohol and leave it to cure. Just like the liqueurs we made, Andrea, it then comes down to a matter of taste. At Amon's, some of their schnapps cured for just a few weeks, while that Christmas version I spoke about cures for 18 months. And I should point out, these liqueurs are served in tiny glasses, so you really just get a small taste. Okay, so sugar, cinnamon, and alcohol. So far, so good, Denmark. <laughs> Anything we haven't hit yet? Well, the Danes are also known for their amazing variety of open-faced sandwiches called schmorbrot, which translates to butter, schmur, and bread brought. These can be piled high with all kinds of toppings, from cheese to fish to steak, and we ate them a few times. My friend Carrie had a fish version with fried and steamed fish and caviar. Ooh. I had a sampler plate that included one each of chicken, tuna, and what the menu called roast beef, but turned out to be a small steak. Oh. I was very full. <laughs> 
We also had a classic pickled herring version that was delicious. Well, I love this idea for a party. You could make just a huge variety of open-faced sandwiches and keep everyone happy. And I'll post a link to a great Food 52 article about the history of this iconic sandwich, as well as some great variations if you'd like to bring a little bit of Denmark to your dinner table. It sounds like a lot of home baking potential for fans of Danish treats, from pastries to sandwiches to schnapps. Well, Stefan, thanks for another delicious foodie tour, and I'd love to hear from any listeners who have ever tried to make their own schnapps. That sounds like a fun project with great gifting potential. Well, the timer's buzzed, and we've got to get the icing onto this episode. We release new shows every Monday morning, and next week, we'll find out if those hot cross buns have us hopping into our kitchens. We'll also take on one of our biggest baking challenges with a cake made famous in Jan Karen's Mitford series of books. And finally, we'll sit down at the kitchen table for a moment and review this month's preheated book club pick, Greg Atkinson's At the Kitchen Table. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. If you like our show, please tell a friend and subscribe, and consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our show. Until next time, I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Thanks for listening, and sweet dreams. is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. I want to start that over because I have no idea what I'm going to say. <clears throat>